No, I like Lent because it gives me a clear way to bear my cross, as Jesus commanded in the gospel passage this morning. It gives me a way of living out my faith, which so often can feel like an obscure, spiritual, alternate universe. I'm sure all of you have felt that way. There's a disconnect. We know that we're a part of the story, but we don't know how to be a part of the story, always looking for a way to be involved. It's like, I remember when I was a senior in college, and as an English lit major, I was convinced for the first time to read the Harry Potter series. This is not an endorsement, nor a, you know, a total bashing of the series. I had put it off out of arrogance. Uh, when I was young, I preferred Lord of the Rings, and I wanted everybody to know that, and that made me feel good about me. This is also not a plug for, for that. I mean, maybe a plug for Lord of the Rings, but not arrogance, obviously. Um, and so I was, I was convinced, okay, fine. All of these other people who take literature seriously are like, this is an important child's tale. It's shaped a generation. You should probably think through it, read it, be moved by it. And so I said, fine, sure. So I go through all of it, Christmas break, and I came out on the other side not a wizard, couldn't tell you if I was, I don't think, um, and I was in despair. And it wasn't because Harry Potter is a tragedy, it ends happily enough. It wasn't because Rowling didn't land the plane, she ended her story well enough. It was because I had been immersed in a story where bravery and courage and beauty had objects to strive against. There was a real and present enemy and dangers to go through in order to combat that enemy. And I popped out back in the real world where our enemy is obscure. How do we fight the devil? Oh, just, you know, keep being pious. Cool. You know, I wanted a sword to swing. I was 20 years old, about to graduate college, unsure of so much of what life had for me, and I just wanted something in front of me that was tangible and clear. What I love about Lent is that Lent places us in the story. It's actually, we are a part of the story, the true story, and this gives us a means of entering into it with a clear battle plan for how we engage with our enemy and with the enemy of our great king. So we're invited into the fray. And we can trek through the wilderness and face this enemy. And though we're not likely, perhaps, to get into a physical brawl with him as heroic uh, or fantastic heroes, 
we do notice that our minds and hearts wander as we give of ourselves. And we can feel this in a real way. But it's clear that the first disciples were not so enthusiastic about this battle strategy. Right in our gospel reading, there's anything but affirmation that this entering into suffering on behalf of the great king was a good thing. Now, this is, this is because in the Gospel of Mark, absolutely nobody understands Jesus' plan. Absolutely nobody gets that what Jesus is doing is he is totally turning power on its head. What the world sees as powerful, Jesus is saying, this is untrue. And Stephen pointed this out beautifully last week. Because the world is under the power of the devil. And the devil, actually, when he went to tempt Jesus, was trying to tempt him with what he thought power was. And so, the great irony is that the devil is tricked. He has his own imagination of what power looks like because he is envious of God. And so when power, when the all-powerful walks right in front of him, he doesn't recognize it because it doesn't match his standard. The devil deceives himself. This is the same sort of thing that's happening in this passage. This is why Peter is called Satan. Right? Peter has an expectation of power. And he doesn't understand when Jesus' understanding of power is different than his own. And Jesus rebukes him and puts him back into his place for his own good and says, No, you have misunderstood what power is. Now, before we cast too much judgment on Pearly Pete, we should probably ask, why is it that they were expecting this sort of power? And we're going to draw from two images that are essential to this point in the text. So, the first one, just a couple verses before our text, Peter does the right thing. Jesus says, you know, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the Messiah. Nailed it. Jesus says, got one right. You've got a 10 on your quiz out of 100. But still, he got one right. Better, better than others. And so what did the Jews of the first century think the Messiah was? Right? This isn't necessarily, you know, Peter's fault for thinking that the Messiah would be awesome and powerful in all the ways that the world thought was powerful. Uh, the whole theology that they had built out of the Old Testament of the Messiah seemed pretty cool. 
It's the, and the, the idea of the Messiah, it's, it's not super clear in the Old Testament. It's not like, you know, Isaiah says, the Messiah will come and do this and this and this, and the Messiah will do that. The idea of the Messiah was built out of two things. The knowledge that a king from the line of David was going to come, was promised, that was God's covenant thing, that was like, as sure as anything, we're not the Jewish people if God hasn't, isn't going to keep this promise. A king from the line of David will come, and kings are always anointed. And that's what Messiah means, anointed one. And so, that's the first thing. Davidic king was going to come. Kings are royal. Royalty means power. I mean, that's just, that's just how the world works, right? And so, and pro, you know, if it's from the line of David, ruddy, handsome, come on, that's power too. But the second thing is that there are these other prophetic passages in the Old Testament where a less clear figure is anointed by the Holy Spirit, and this is passages like Isaiah 61, where they do things like set the captives free, restore the sight of the blind. And that sounds, oh, that's, that's pretty cool, that's kind of powerful, but like I've seen a lot of action movies, a lot of people, you know, they just knock the lock off the gate and then they set the prisoners free. But how about bringing in the year of the Lord's favor or the day of his wrath? Okay, now we're talking power again, right? That's, that's big deal stuff. So if the Messiah is a Davidic king who precipitates both the year of the Lord's favor and the day of wrath, poor Pete stood no chance. He's thinking, big power. We are not marching to a shameful death on a cross. You combine that with the fact that Jesus keeps calling himself the son of man. Now, this is even trickier. And I'm going to apologize ahead of time, but in order for you to understand the imagery of the son of man, we have to actually just read Daniel chapter 7, because this is a prophetic figure that is certainly the most epic and powerful figure presented to us in the Old Testament. It's apocalyptic in nature, but I don't want to throw more big words at you. I want, we're going to read through a few verses here, and I just want you to soak it in and feel what kind of, what kind of scene we're in and whether or not this screams out power to you. Daniel said, in my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven, churning up the great sea, four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a man. And the heart of a man was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back, it had four wings, 
like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, then there before me was another horn, a little horn, which came up among them. And three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. The hair of his head was like white wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I know that many of you are tempted in your minds right now to either say, well, that's nonsense, or to try to decode the message. What, you know, what was he talking about? What are the things? And indeed, an angel does help Daniel sift through some of what that symbolism was directed towards. But it's really important for us right now that you feel that. If God wanted to give you bullet points, he would have done that. But he gave Daniel an image to pass along to us of something that is far bigger, more beautiful, and more terrible than we can conceive of or than we would expect. There is a spiritual world and a war out there that is just enormous and grand. And you can't understand the authority of the Son of Man if you don't understand the terror of the beasts. If you can't feel this image that God has presented us with. So, with this, with these beasts, each growing in power as we hear of them, and then the authority in this 
chariot throne of flaming justice, right? I wish I had named my first car that. The Son, one like the Son of Man, is brought up into this supernatural scene and is given that authority. Can you imagine? You're brought up in, in Rome. You're a Jewish teenage boy. You've grown up with this story. And it's not a story, it's a prophecy. You, this expectation, this hope, this real hope. You hear Jesus refer to himself as the Son of Man. You just could not think, suffer and die. Right? It does not compute. You're thinking, oh, Rome's going to get theirs. I'm, you know, we're going to be a part of it. We're going to see his authority come. I want to see that freaking chariot of fire come. Right? That's what you're thinking. The disciples are jazzed up about this power show from Jesus. But time and time again, what he does is gently remind them, you don't understand power, but I'm showing you now. And so he calls them. He calls all of them in. And he says, you have to take up your cross. And so we're left here to sit and think about the paradox. He says, if you want to live, you must die. Well, that doesn't work, Jesus. Living and dying are different. They're opposed. But why is there a paradox? And I want to put before you that there's a paradox because it's essential to who God is. He's three in one. And I want to put before you that we don't understand it because when we were in Eden, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil came at a cost. At first, there was, for all of humanity, the possibility of a radical dependence on God. We were image bearers. God was the image. We were meant to bear it. But with the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, we fundamentally cut off our trust of God. Regardless of how much faith he could still put in us, we became so isolated and insecure that we could not trust him the way that we were meant to trust. And an image bearer without an image is just bare. We were empty. And we felt empty. And we felt scared. And each of us, all our lives ever since, has just done whatever is in our power to control what we can, to give ourselves the best life that we think that we can, to pursue our own goods. 
but at just the right time. One like a son of man came. Only this one was fully dependent because the son of the father is eternally submitted to the son and that father sends his love to that son by the spirit forever. There is a radical trust and the Trinity weaves in and out in this dance of always giving glory and honor one to the next, him to the other. And by taking humanity into this divine, eternal relationship, Jesus walked through a perfect life, not needing to seek power because the power of the love and trust of God was in him. The power not to obtain, not to conquer, but to love, to trust, to seek harmony, and to seek the place of submission that humanity was meant for. He walked a life of perfect faith, fully human, just going about each moment, knowing that the Father had something for him. Whether he knew what it was or not, there were moments where Jesus definitely did not know what was going to come before him. But he had real faith because the Son submits to the Father the way that all of us should have forever. And so Jesus goes to die, not just because Judas betrayed him, but because we all did, because we are all backstabbers, you and me. We don't trust God with hardly anything. We always take things back into our own hands. And Jesus knew that the only way to bring us back in was to march on death and conquer death itself. And so the battle march went on to death. And he hung and died there, trusting that the Father's goodness and the love of the Spirit would be enough. I probably owe many of you an apology now. I started this sermon off talking about how I loved the practicality of Lent and I dragged you through Daniel 7 in Trinitarian theology. But I really think that it's important for us to see the paradox of God's power. Jesus is not saying that if you only suffer, you know, like then... I will give you more power, right? That's like the dark side of the force or black magic, right? There's not some exchange rate by which you can do enough suffering to yield rewards of God giving you blessings. Jesus leads us into a way of radical submission because the submission is where we were meant to be. It's a journey home. 
and with everything that we learn to give up to God, every choice we make to say, no, I, I don't need that this, this year. I'm going to give that up, and I'm going to lean on Jesus every time I think about it. We're, we're leaning back into the paradise that we were created for. Because at the heart of the Trinity, up there, the ascended Lord is still one like a son of man, interceding for us as a human, drawing all of humanity back to its rightful place with the Father. And this Lent is an invitation for you to press into that, for you to draw near to the inner Trinitarian dependence, for you to look at the power of the world and the cravings of the flesh and say, no, get behind me, Satan. I I remember Romans 8, we're more than conquerors. I don't need the power that you're promising. I need the power of the Son who trusted the Father so that I can live back into the obedience and the beauty of God. Amen.